1: Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. Noah Hawley is my guest on this episode of Wheels Off. Noah Hawley, you may know him from his work on the television show he created and runs Fargo. You may know him from his novels, most recent of which is Anthem, a novel that just came out. His one right before that was Before the Fall, which was a giant bestseller. He's got movies, Lucy in the Sky with Natalie Portman. He's got other television shows. He's got everything. He does it all. He and I are both alumni of Sarah Lawrence College. Although I dropped out, he graduated. (laughs) And uh, he went on to do so many cool things. And to hear him talk about his approach to creativity and his journey through the creative life, his creative life, it's pretty inspiring. I'm so grateful that he agreed to let me pick his brain. And what a brain it is. Please welcome to this episode of Wheels Off the great Noah Hawley. Welcome to Wheels Off, Noah Hawley. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Hey, thanks for having me. This is so cool. Um, for the edification of our listeners, from where are you joining?
0: Uh, I'm in Austin, Texas right now, where I live.
1: Nice. Nice. I was born there and I miss it. It's a great town.
0: Yes. It's a uh... It's expanding greatly, and and uh, there's a lot of change built into it, but uh, it still remains a great place to live.
1: That's so cool. And uh, congratulations on Anthem. It's very great. Thank you, Thank you so much. Um, so what creative project are you working on right now, and how does it light you up?
0: Uh, well, right now I've got a couple of things that I'm working on. Um, <clears throat> You know, I, I can't seem to do one thing at a time, um, which which I suppose is my choice. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm thinking about another season of Fargo, the final season, let's call it a final season. And then um, I'm also working on an adaptation of, of the, the movie Alien as a, as a series for uh, FX. Uh, and that's, that's they're both lighting up very different parts of my
1: brain. And for those do you do you do writer writers' rooms
0: i do i do writers' rooms um usually small rooms um often as a way of helping myself think out loud um, and um you know and and as a way of of continuing the the sort of apprenticeship uh that is built into the the film business right which is you know, there's a path that you take if you're a camera assistant, if you're a writer, if you're a director, you, you know, you, you're mentored and you work your way up and you learn how it works. And I think that's very important.
1: That's great. I mean, there's an inherent generosity in even choosing to do those writer's rooms. Um, Well well done. When you were, when you were starting out, because you obviously you do a lot of different things. I mean, it's all writing and and it's all storytelling, but you come at it from a lot of different ways. You utilize a lot of different media. Um, when you were first realizing that you wanted to do this creative life, um, do you remember a moment where you knew that you were going to be uh, a storyteller, a writer? Was there an epiphany moment for you?
0: Well, I think it was sort of an always thing. I grew up in, in a in a household of, of artists um, in Greenwich Village um you know my mom was a painter and a writer and my dad had been an actor and when i was young he was making um sort of newsreel films for united press international but um he would wear a suit every day to work and what he wore as a suit was jeans and a jeans jacket uh and a tie and uh, new york in the 70s um and um you know, we had so so many artist friends, so so I think it would have been strange had I decided I wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> um, but, but I did, you know, uh, the, so I was sort of writing stories from a very young age, and then around 15 or, or 16, I discovered the guitar, and then I decided I wanted to be a songwriter, and then I was doing that for, for a, a while. But after a while, you know, when you're in a band, as you know, um, You realize that you're chained to these guys and you can't get anything done and and you know back back in the in the day you couldn't record things as easily as you can now and so you would you know you'd work your day job for months and months and months to be able to spend some money to go into the studio and then instantly you would have some great musical growth after the studio so that the music didn't even really represent what you were doing anymore and and but when you sat down to write ten pages of fiction, you had ten pages. So it was a very satisfying, creatively on that level, that you didn't need all those guys, and what you had was what you had.
1: It, it's funny. I've always kind of lorded over my actor friends my own ability to control my content, where they're dependent on a, a, a writer or a room of writers. But you're right. Once you point out that you know that I'm sort of beholden to a group of people and a producer and a label and all that stuff, whereas A fiction writer can just sit down and really create content with no gatekeeper.
0: Yeah, I mean, any kind of writing, I I think, gives you the opportunity to to solve your problems. You know, if if you know can't pay the rent, maybe you know you can write that thing, that song, that book, that movie that's going to change your fortune. Um, And it it is harder if your if your job is to interpret other people's words. First, you need to be hired to do the job, and then you know it's it's a longer process and and uh, you know you you see a lot of and, and you know in the, in the old days, people didn't really become novelists until they were forty. You know you had to live first before you did it. So it was always seen as something that you weren't going to age out of. I mean that's changed, I think, as our society has gotten more youth youth oriented, but certainly, you know it, it wasn't as as a as youth driven as a, as other things
1: um with anthem you well, you've acknowledged a sort of debt to um, uh, Kurt Vonnegut in the the writing and sort of the putting together the your most recent book and i I've always held him up as an ex- a great example of a late in life novelist, right when was he when his first novel was in his forties right
0: yeah, he started i mean you know he was writing short stories um while he he did his day jobs and and uh but yeah it took him it took him a while to achieve success the and then you know what was so fascinating about him is that you know his success as a writer in his 40s was in appealing to people in their 20s right like he found a voice a, a kind of way to take the 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 piss out of out of society and and to, to mix drama and comedy and 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 it's a very counterculture, sort of before counterculture existed in a way. And I guess it was my hope with this book, which is written for adults, but uh, very much about what it is at this moment to be inheriting the earth from your elders, that that it might appeal to to a similar um, demographic.
1: Yeah, I'm only about a third of the way. I just got it. I'm only about a third of the way through, but um I've got a 15-year-old and an 18-year-old of my own and god it hits really close to home. Sometimes perhaps too close. It's it's good. It's it's hardcore.
0: Well, it's you know, as a parent and my kids are a little younger than yours, but but yeah, you you spend a lot of time worrying And, and certainly the last few years have been troublesome for, for all of us. Um, and our kids know that. They're aware that. And if we're anxious, how can they not be anxious?
1: Because we're the ones who are supposed to have it all under control. The little pitchers and the big ears. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, so my understanding is that, you're, that you, you were at Sarah Lawrence briefly. I was there in 1989 for one semester before I dropped out um but my understanding is that your route to writing was a little circuitous like you didn't study it at Sarah Lawrence which I was surprised or or you didn't perhaps major in it not that there's majors at Sarah Lawrence but um you and you wound up doing kind of other jobs for a little while I'm wondering how that worked out and was that sort of delaying the inevitable or were you really trying something that you felt strongly about before you gave up on it how was that well,
0: I, I graduated in '89 when when you were there, and and you know I had decided at 16 that I wanted to to be a rock star, but I'm not a night person, so that <laughs> didn't really work out. You know, nobody. It's it's very hard to get the day gigs and have them be meaningful. Um, <laughs> but um, but um, the reality is that I was there. I did study some writing, as you said. They didn't have majors, but but, you know, I, I had the focus of a young man who was convinced of his rightness that, you know, it, it was music or death. And then, you know, and then after college, I moved to New York City I was still trying to get the band going. And I took a day job at the Legal Aid Society, um, working with abuse and neglected kids and juvenile delinquency cases and termination of parental rights cases. And I was helping um, about 40 attorneys. Um with an overwhelming caseload every day. And it was really emotionally taxing work. And certainly music was, was a, a way to express those experiences. And, and also it's a great emotional outlet, but there was something I felt like I needed to explore. It was more complicated than you could explore in a song, at least at my skill level, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and yeah. So, so I started writing fiction. In the beginning, just as a way to to try to um, figure out what what it was that I was seeing and and going through. And and that kind of started a process for me, which I think came as a student at Sarah Lawrence, which was built very much around independent study and asking and answering questions, which was, you know, to to pose a question and try to solve a little story.
1: I love that. And and you, your first novel was about a few years later, right? Like you were late thirties, yeah. or sorry, thirty. Yeah,
0: I was twenty-seven, I think, when the first okay. book came out. It was called *The Conspiracy of Tall Men*. Yeah, and um, and that was, you know, I I had studied the sort of history of paranoia in American political life, which seemed to come in these cycles, and then of course it was making the late nineties when the X-Files was on and you had Ruby Ridge and and Oklahoma city bombing. And it became clear that we were going through that cycle again. And I thought, well, what are Americans so afraid of? And that became the question around which I had to build a story, um, which became the story of this professor of conspiracy theories whose wife was killed in a plane crash. And, And that started me down that path of sort of ask and answer um you know leading ultimately to this book which is probably a thousand questions answered as as uh, as succinctly as possible entertainingly as possible
1: were there other books that you abandoned before conspiracy yeah
0: i mean it wasn't that i abandoned them necessarily but but um you know when you're learning on the job right mm-hmm. um, you have to accept that the early work is is trial and error and you know there were probably i probably wrote three novels before i i wrote the one that sold um I wrote one that got close and didn't sell and that was very frustrating but you can't make them change their mind you know what i mean and, <laughs> and but you know that's also the the process is is you know you you're learning a lot and and i I learned by reading and by writing, and so one of the things that I did in the, in writing this book was I thought, oh, well, let me go back to the sort of small list of books that I read in my youth that I felt really opened my mind as to what a novel could be, whether it's White Noise or A Hundred Years of Solitude or Unbearable Lightness of Being, you know, or Slaughterhouse Five where you thought, oh wait, a novel can be that? I had no idea that, that you could break out of a linear storytelling format that you know that you could have a cartoon of an asshole in the book and that and that you know your lead character could go to the planet Tremalfador, you know, at some point. Like that, you know, there's the stuff that you learn how flexible the medium is, you know, which which I think is is always some of the most inspiring work, you know. And it's not always for everybody, you know. Infinite Jest isn't for everybody, right? But but um, but the but the world of literature is is forever changed by it.
1: Yeah. Um. So growing growing up in Greenwich Village and being uh, maybe encouraged at least by having it modeled for you uh, to to be artistic and 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 you know, perhaps convert your emotions into some sort of, you know, product, not not that necessarily in a commercial sense, but just, you know, making something from them. I wonder about the way that you have learned over the years to deal with internally generated obstacles, you know, uh, self-doubt, imposter syndrome comes up a lot, maybe success guilt has come up a lot, um, just like the different things that we create in our mind that that work to sort of keep us from Doing the work, the the anti-creative forces that we generate internally. Um, I'm wondering how you have figured out to get through those beyond those.
0: It's interesting. You know, we we were up in Chicago making um this last season of Fargo and and I had dinner with um Jason Schwartzman and my and my wife. And Jason was asking, he's like, How do you do all this stuff? How do you, you know, how do you manage to get it done? And my wife said, well he has no doubt in him. And (laughs) I I hadn't thought about it that way before, but but on some level, creatively that is true. I don't I don't have doubt about the work. You know what I mean? Like I know when I'm diving in because I also know that it's a process where I have to find it. But I found it before. So why wouldn't I find it this time? And that doesn't mean that there aren't bad days or bad weeks or, or you know that that the the business of it can can really sour the creative process you know what i mean or the deadlines of it or you know when when you when you reach a, a certain level there's just so much business that has to be done every day you know and especially going into production that the writing time you know you really have to fight for the writing time but i also learned as writing for television because of that that if you know, if you go, well, when, when can I rewrite the script? And they say, well, you have a break between three and six. Like, okay, well, I guess that's when I'm rewriting the script. Like the (laughs) the act of writing has to be what inspires you to write. There's no muse.
1: I love that. And it's such practical advice. And I feel like people use um, sort of the opposite theory to keep themselves from working so much. So to hear you say it, I feel like is so great and reassuring and useful um,
0: I, well, I, and I don't um I don't push myself, you know, on a day where I'm not feeling it. I don't beat myself up about it. You know, we'll write tomorrow. It's okay.
1: Um, and sort of you've brought it up the the idea of um, like having to write for a deadline, having to write for other people, like an over a corporate overseer. Uh, the question comes up a lot in these conversations about um when you are specifically trying to calculate your art to make an audience happy or um a label a record label or or uh, an editor i wonder about your your thoughts about calculation as um creativity killer like is that something you've discovered or have you found that you can use uh their their notes and their pressure and their expectations um to to fuel your work to be better
0: i mean i don't think you can i don't think you can guess at what it is that an audience is going to want in the future right i mean i, I think i'm pretty good at at being able to hit the zeitgeist you know from a distance but but you know and and i and i think if you if you told people that you know, the biggest movie of the pandemic was going to be a Spider-Man movie. It wouldn't shock anybody. you know what I mean? But there were also other big movies that just didn't do it that that people might have thought would have succeeded. So you kind of can't guess at it. what i what i am interested in and what I think that I'm good at is within a story, understanding what where the reader or the audience is, what do they? What do they think is happening right now? What do they want to happen next? And I can either give it to them, or I give them something different. Um, but if I'm going to give them something different, I have to know that that I'm not giving them what they want. And so I have to make it a more satisfying experience, where it's like, oh, I thought I wanted that, but this is so much better, you know. So a lot of it is about under, understanding and calibrating the story where it's like, oh, OK, well, this part, I, they're, this feels slow and they're going to get lost here. Um, you know, there's a moment in. In the first season of Fargo, you know, where, where Billy Bob, who's the villain, he's, he's been living in this cabin and Colin Hanks, who's a cop, shows up after Billy Bob leaves and he goes into the house and then Billy Bob goes off and he has this whole adventure and he comes back to the cabin and goes inside and at that point because of everything that's happened the audience has completely forgotten that Colin Hanks is there until he steps out of the shadows right and and you know w- w- and when he steps out of the shadows two things happen at the same time one is you realize he's there and the second is you remember he's there right and there's something to the the, the fact that, that you knew it but you forgot that creates a hair raising moment in a way that you wouldn't get it if he had just shown up, if that makes sense. And, and, I, and I, I sort of had this instinctual sense that people would just forget he was there, you know, and, and, and it proved to be true. And so I think those instincts can be very helpful um, to sort of understand the, the power of the story and, and how, how our brains can trick us.
1: So it's less like uh trying to predict and pander to an audience and more like they're your friends and you're guiding them on an adventure. Is that maybe right?
0: It is. And and you know, I, I have a particular beef about about music in <laughs> in movies and television, especially um, you know, the sort of sad piano music that comes in, and it comes in not after a sad thing happens, but before the sad thing happens, to signal to you that the sad thing is happening. Right? It's like it, it anticipates the moment. It makes me so crazy. Um, you know, let the audience have the emotion, and then if you want to enhance it with the music, then enhance it with the music. But but the moment that that you bring that score in too early, um, you're, it's melodrama.
1: Yeah, it's part of the dumbing down of the culture, right? yeah you know what
0: when i was at abc the first couple of shows they used to use this word emotionality which isn't a word right it's not a thing you know but and i finally figured out that what they meant was not a real emotion but a simulated emotion you know it is that you know and it, it has to be a simple emotion i really like moments of catharsis where you you bring the story and the characters to this point where there's just so much feeling in there you know and you apply pressure to it and it yields you know catharsis means from happy from sadness comes happiness like there's a breakthrough moment in which in which there's so much emotion that's so complex that it's it's really uplifting it's a much more powerful feeling than any sort of melancholy you know but 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 you can't predict it and i think that's the problem is that some people feel exactly what you want them to feel. And other people don't. And, you know, for networks, they want everything to be very um, focused
1: group. God, I love that. That's so great. It's a thing that comes up a lot in these conversations, the idea that of calculation as being not, not necessarily a good thing, but, but a bad thing, especially when it's cloying like that. I remember an eighth grade writing teacher, my favorite teacher, and I wrote something and I overwrote the hell out of this story for him and it when i got it back it had a giant word at the top it just said maudlin and i (laughs) i went i looked i looked up maudlin and then i think about it all the time right it's it's john lennon and paul mccartney sitting there going oh but you don't want to be too um there's clever and then there's uh um what's the word not cute um anyway yeah yeah cliche just you know cloying um okay so This is so great. I feel like there's so much like actionable, useful wisdom in the last 25 minutes of conversation. I'm hoping that you would be willing to try and distill uh, this wisdom for us a little bit. If you uh, imagine yourself meeting up with a 21-year-old version of Noah Hawley, but in today's world, um, can you think of what advice you might give yourself?
0: Well, yes, there's a couple of things. Um, One creative question that that I always ask that I think is really critical is what am I taking for granted, right? When I come to this story or this piece of music or whatever it is, what am I taking for granted, right? What am I assuming that I have to do just because it's always been done that way, right? So like, for example, when I made this movie, Lucy in the Sky, which was gonna be a theatrical release, I thought, oh, I'm taking the movie theater for granted. I'm taking the fact that it's that there's a giant rectangle and you're surrounded by speakers and and you, you think that what you want is the image to fill the whole rectangle and all the speakers to be used. But the reality is the movie theater is just another tool, right? And if I have a character who's been to space where everything feels so huge and then she comes back to earth and everything feels small, well, then why can't I use the movie theater to create that experience for the audience? Right. So, so that question, of what am I taking for granted? You know, and, and there's so much of, you know, at a basic level, we always take for granted when we tell a story that we need to start in the beginning and go to the middle and end in the end. Right. But, but you don't need to do that at, at all. So, so certainly don't, don't, you have know, got to figure out what, what the assumptions are that you're making without even realizing that you're making them. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I love it.
0: Yeah. And then the other thing is just don't take it personally. You know what I mean? It's not personal, right? The, they say, you know, they reject your book. They're not rejecting you. You know, they cancel your show. It's not you. So, so but because we're artists, it feels so personal, you know, but if you can learn to, to detach the work from your own ego, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go much better for you.
1: Wow. And I love this. I love I could I wish I could have a little bit of that uh, never doubting myself that your wife described. I think that's fantastic.
0: (laughs) Um, It's it's not that I haven't gone through phases (laughs) uh, with more doubt in it. But but um, but now I just get excited. I get excited about the work, you know, and and, you know, I, I I have managed after all these years when I'm creating something to not think about the audience not think well how's this going to go over i'm just trying to to solve the puzzle once the puzzle is solved and we release it to the world then i think oh i I wonder what people will think about this
1: ah that's so great well man i'm so glad i have gotten to talk to you um you know i loved before the fall i'm loving anthem and um and obviously the tv stuff is great i just what i'm uh, i'm in awe of your prolificness is that a word or is that like emotionality okay
0: no, not. that's the word.
1: <laughs> um, well, this is great. And um, I just thank you so much for joining us here on wheels off today, Noah. Excellent. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much for listening to wheels off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, As the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all.